Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, when Jesus is one of a kind seminar, they've moved out of town and up into the hillsides around Capernaum. And the audience has swelled to unimaginable sizes. This brought out investigators from Judaism's home office in Jerusalem. They arrived and embedded themselves amongst the crowds so that they could observe. Now their mission was probably not a nefarious one, and it wasn't probably intended at that point to undermine Jesus in any way, but simply to investigate. You see, the people of Judaism had been accustomed in those days to a pattern of being, being in God's favor and being blessed and prosperous and then falling away from God and eventually suffering terrific oppression. And then being delivered from the oppressor until they found themselves loving God and worshiping God and then being blessed by God. And this pattern repeated itself over and over again in the Old Testament, as many of you probably know. And there they were a people accustomed to this pattern by then and even divided over the best way to avoid the recurring of this pattern. And so no doubt there were people who had been eager to send out these observers and investigators because perhaps this was a true deliverer, this was the true Messiah they were looking for. And the only way to know was to observe him carefully and, of course, they had their superiors to answer to back at the home office. And there would be a difference of opinion amongst them as to what the Messiah should be like in order to know for sure whether this guy was the real deal or whether he was some sort of pretender to the throne of Messiah. And unfortunately, the dividing lines then and now always seem to be um, around the idea of faith versus perception. In other words, there were people in the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day who were humans and who were looking for human solutions to their big problems with their oppressors like the Romans in this case. They were looking at this objectively and yet subject to 
those things that could be perceived and understood according to their human intellect. In other words, they didn't believe in anything they couldn't quantify. And so you could call them scientists or pragmatists or something like that. But then there were others who had a different approach to Jesus and the Bible and the Spirit and God and all of that. And they simply thought that it was better to act in faith first. Now, this is an age-old dilemma. This has been around for as long as humanity has existed. And religion tends to heighten and divide this dilemma into a couple of camps. And it's usually those who will believe only after seeing and those who will believe and then seek to understand. One of my favorite uh, ancient scholars, St. Anselm of Canterbury, who lived in the 11th century, is credited with a motto that I've used for years, faith seeking understanding. And what Anselm wrote about this, he wrote extensively about this, but what, what he was best known for is his opposition to the people who were tactile and wanted to measure and quantify in order that their faith could be informed and then they would have faith. And his response to them was, is until I have faith, I can't fully understand. In other words, Anselm wanted people to understand that the things you try to measure about God are things that you can't see or grasp in some way that you can measure them until you are a person of faith. And so his, his devotion to this principle is, is like mine. I know that there were a lot of things about God that didn't make sense to me until I was a fully functioning follower of Christ until I gave up my doubts and my need to fulfill myself in my faith. In other words, if you're going to get right down to the nitty-gritty of this, it's always the same difference for us. If you are looking for yourself to be satisfied in order that you can believe in God or Jesus as the Messiah, then you have done the fundamental thing that defines sin, which is Pride. Pride says it will not, I will not believe until I see. And we know a story like that, don't we? When Jesus rose from the grave and Thomas hadn't seen him yet. And what did Thomas say in response to the claims made by the other apostles? He said, I won't believe it till I stick my fingers in the holes, until I probe his side, then I'll believe. And so he, like most people, was not willing to have faith until he had had some sort of measurable, quantifiable evidence. And the problem with that is, is that's pride. That's saying self before faith, self before God. And so what Anselm wanted us to understand, and I believe we still need to struggle with, is the reality that we should try to believe first and then watch as our faith creates knowledge and understanding that we didn't know we were capable of. Now, this is vital because history informs us that there's this ongoing tension in religion. It's been around as long as religion's been around. There is, at best, a balance between religious institution and true discipleship or faith, 
And when they coexist comfortably, religion provides a vehicle for faith and faith provides the fuel. And yet it doesn't take long before institution becomes often more representative and more uh, uh, visible in so many ways than the people of faith within it. This is what happened in the case of Jesus. The gap had widened to the point where the religious institutions at the home office in Jerusalem had become in their own way very worldly and secular. And it wasn't that they didn't do and say things that were authentic in their expression, but they were done for the benefit of humans rather than for God. Jesus being the most astute and observant human being that ever walked the earth, he had the capacity to see both the faithful and the uh, institutional and somehow irritate both of them into a response. One of the remarkable things about this, this uh, Sermon on the Mount seminar was that it had grown to the capacity that it did so rapidly so that there were multitudes, thousands of people who had come to hear Jesus, who had camped out in the hills and the countryside. And in the process, many of them had come in part because they'd heard of fabulous miracles that Jesus had performed. And what's really remarkable to me, if you think about it, is that there were relatively few people who really experienced physical miracles. I mean, you know, for every one person who got a physical healing from Jesus, there were a thousand people who only heard about it. And so what's worth noting in this case is that Jesus may have proven that Jesus was the Messiah by doing the miracles that prophecy had informed us would identify the Messiah. And this may have drawn people who were desperate for healing or just curious about such things. But the real miracle were the thousands, even tens of thousands, who were spiritually healed by the words of Jesus. By simply listening to Jesus speak, people's lives were changed forever. And what's really amazing, if you think about it, is all of this happened before the Holy Spirit flooded the earth at Pentecost. I wonder if we're not conscious at times of the fact that we receive countless blessings by the ever-present Holy Spirit in our lives. We benefit daily from the influence and presence of the Holy Spirit in a way that these people did not. Scripture tells us the Spirit came in limited means and for limited times and purposes among people that had been handpicked by God for this purpose. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit came for everyone to receive. And really the only reason that you don't have it is because you haven't accepted it. But that's like passing a water fountain because you're not thirsty. It's still there. And the water will still flow when you 
call upon it. But if you're not thirsty, then you don't drink. And so it's worth noting that these people were transformed because Jesus was God in the flesh, expressing God's presence in such a huge and profound way in his words and his countenance, his very presence, that it was like Pentecost if you were around Jesus and listening to Jesus. So think about this for a moment. If there were a few who were changed forever by his miracles of healing and physical restoration, there were an immeasurable number of people who were changed forever by his words. He was and is the incarnate human image of God. And what he said about himself and about us in these blessings that are associated with the Beatitudes or the intro to the Sermon on the Mount are both evidence of who he wants us to be, but also evidence of who he is. In other words, like most prophetic words in Scripture, there is dual meaning. Jesus says in those Beatitudes, this is what a blessed life looks like. And he is then describing God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and describing what our lives would be like if we were living into that blessing. And so we're seeing in the Beatitudes the character of Christ and therefore the character we are to model. And we're assured that by modeling it to the best of our ability, we're blessed. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 29 to 30. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his decision of that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. And so in Jesus, we see the image of God and Jesus describes God's character to us and then tells us to do likewise, just as God had intended. So a blessed life imitates the life of Jesus. That means we have to despise the character qualities of humanity that most reject the character qualities of Jesus. Daniel Doriani is the author of the book, The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple, which, by the way, is where I stole the title for this series because I'm not very good at making up names for sermon series. He says this, The Bible teaches both that God grants us a new heart or character and that we must pursue a righteous character. Paul says that the man of God must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The Beatitudes also make both points when Jesus blesses the disciples who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
He blesses those who make righteousness their goal. But the divine passives remind us that he is also present in our quest. He will comfort, satisfy, and show mercy to his sons and daughters as they pursue their goal. So Doriani is saying that the pivotal beatitude is the one that says, we're blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, as I've said before, is a word that means being right with God. In other words, choosing to align our character with God's character. And so those religious investigators in the crowd, they, they eventually reported back to their superiors, and the superiors determined that Jesus was probably too much of a threat. They decided that while everything he said and did was remarkable, it was also dangerous. And there was a risk that it would create turmoil in the community. And so they decided they needed to deal with him. They felt that, after all, the Messiah was someone who brought discomfort and pain to their enemies, not them. And yet everything Jesus said describes a disciple of his own being someone who's willing to endure difficulty, pain, and distress. Willing to endure persecution because of their faith. So this couldn't be the Messiah because we are supposed to get all the good stuff and the enemies are supposed to get all the bad stuff. And there was their flaw in their thinking. It was humanistic. We have this problem today in the church. There are many churches you can go to or watch on TV or wherever else you want to consume religion as an institution that say plainly, God wants to make you happy. Now, they may not say it in so many words, but they just avoid the pain. They try really hard not to mention that there is suffering in discipleship, that a blessed life, one that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, will certainly have its difficulties. And chief among those difficulties will be sacrificing your selfish desires and your pride and your self-direction and your need to be important and influential. And all of these things seem perfectly reasonable to us when we look at ourselves up against the world and its institutions. And unfortunately, religion has many such institutions. But the true disciple, the character of a disciple of Christ, is one who lets that die. And when anything dies, there's grief. And so Jesus reminds us that we will be comforted in our grief. How in the world can we believe that Jesus, who was this itinerant preacher who had nowhere to lay his head, who was persecuted throughout his ministry and was scourged with 39 lashes and then crucified, how in the world do we believe that guy intended for us to be comfortable and to have religious institutions that work hard and spend millions of dollars to accommodate our comfort. And so if you've come to church to be entertained or comforted, then you may be disappointed with this message. No doubt that's what the investigators said about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount seminar, you know? He's really amazing, he's really got something there, but boy, it doesn't make me feel any better. 
about myself, about our institution, and that's the point. He is the man of sorrows after all. And this is not to suggest that we should be people of sorrow. It simply means that once we've flip-flopped things from self-determination and selfish desire and made it all about loving and serving the Lord Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah, and our Lord, it will be hard, but it will result in a blessed life. And there will be joy in that. And that joy will surpass anything that your stuff and your influence and your comfort can give you. This is perhaps why Christianity flourishes in third world countries where they have little and much of their lives is controlled by vicious people. According to the Beatitudes, if you're poor in spirit, you will be merciful. If you have cast off your old self, your heart will be purified. And if you're meek and humble, you'll be a peacemaker. How's that working out? It's a tough message to hear, I know. The Beatitudes, which as I said, is a word that means the blessings, aren't really a list of virtues as much as they are character traits of Christ that we are to imitate. And that's never been more important than it is right now. Because we live in a time where our leaders are not modeling these character traits, not even in the church. And I will acknowledge, because I've heard that some of you wonder how I feel about this, that yes, even in the United Methodist Church, we've got a character crisis. In the United Methodist Church, we have a crisis because there are those who are committed deeply to the faith and those who are committed deeply to the institution. And it's the same old dilemma all over again. Our religion turned 300 not long ago, and in 300 years, it's gone from being a movement to an institution. And among the institutional participants are still the faithful. And the tension has begun. And the tension has been most notable in those high-profile issues such as homosexuality and uh, abortion and things like that. And the reality is... If you try to make Christ conform to your wants and desires and needs, the institution is here to help. If you want to conform your life to Christ, then your discipleship is the testimony that you bear, not the name on your church's door. And so my answer to those questions about what kind of response should we have as a United Methodist Church here in Jasper, Indiana, is our response should be discipleship. Plain and simple, live the character traits of Christ. And when you fear that your friends and contemporaries think that you're like those ones that they hear about on the news, just remember the news loves vitriol and filth. That there's nothing that makes the news media more uh, attentive to religious institution like strife and discord among the faithful as they see them. 
Nothing will let the air out of their tires so fast as a family of faith like we are, living the character traits of Christ. And then the people in Jasper who are not part of this family of faith, they might be talking to someone who says, you heard about those Methodists and all their difficulties, haven't you? And they would say, yeah, I hear that, but you know, you should see Shiloh United Methodist Church. There's a bunch of disciples running around over there, loving Jesus, loving each other, always willing to learn something new leading the way in mission and concern and compassion, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, healing the sick of spirit, leading the way in reaching out to a hurting world with the love and grace of God. We could end up giving our denomination a real thorn in the side someday simply by being like Jesus was, to those guys at the home office in Jerusalem. Let's pray. I thank you, God, for your word. I pray that you burn it upon the hearts of your people so that you might be glorified, so that they might be your witnesses in the way they live out the character traits of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.